Thanks for listening to Bezier. Bezier is sponsored by Superhigh, online courses for code, design, and product management. Superhigh's courses can be done in your own home at your own pace. I've been a Superhigh student since 2017 and have gone from being a designer feeling alienated by the should designers code discourse to building my own sites and now even selling web design services. My favorite part of Superhigh is the community of learners. As a Superhigh student, you're added to this huge community of all the other Superhigh students. It's filled with inspiring people from all over the world in all different places in their careers. I've gotten work there, I found podcast guests there, and even made in-person friends, all because of Superhigh. It's easy to get started. There's an online code editor. You can do it on your own schedule. There's built-in community of learners. It's got everything you need. Start learning to code, design, or product manage today at superhigh.com. I like to have guests introduce themselves. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Kate. I'm a designer. I guess I'm a senior designer at Shopify. My pronouns are they, them. I live in North Carolina with my partner, uh, and I'm into running, gardening, kayaking, rowing, and also design. (laughs) Fantastic. I usually ask people to talk about what they do outside of work, but you listed quite a lot of things. (laughs) I have a lot of things, yeah. It's weird to have, like, I feel like when I lived uh, in New York and then when I lived in Montreal it was like harder to have hobbies I think because a lot of my hobbies require like outdoor space and so living in North Carolina there's a lot of outdoor space and it's a lot easier to like have a garden and like go kayaking or you know run outside and not be in the middle of a city and have to stop at every corner (laughs) so yeah it's uh, done wonders for my hobby having I'm curious, just maybe it's the bias of uh, the pandemic for me, but do you work from home being in a place with that's a little bit more open space? Uh, yeah, I work at home. I actually moved to Montreal when I started working for Shopify when we worked in office. There were uh, some of my coworkers worked remotely, but most of us were in office. And then March of 2020, everyone started working from home, and I think they saw the light at the end of the tunnel oh, proverbial and they made the decision that everyone was going to work they were just going to be a remote first company or a remote company so they shut down all the offices I think we've actually closed some offices and yeah it's just going to be permanent so I think we've really invested in a lot of processes to make it possible gave us a budget for like desks I took my monitor home from the Montreal office and brought it to US with me hopefully no like border agents or you know (laughs) tax auditors are watching or listening to I think that's legit but yeah so it's been nice to have the opportunity to figure out how working remotely works and have an opportunity to set up a space that works well. Like I know not everybody likes working remotely, especially if they don't have the right kind of setup or the right environment for it. If you have like kids or family members, or if you have a small apartment or a small house, like it can be really difficult. We're lucky enough to have we, we bought a house earlier this year. And so we knew that we needed space for both of us to work from home. And so setting up like a, a home office has been really nice. I feel like we could turn a whole podcast episode into this conversation, but just maybe <laughs> briefly, the the transition from a large company being a very office culture company to remote first. What has that been like, especially as yeah. a designer? How has your work changed? So I actually switched teams earlier this year as well, but I think 
in general, it has really improved our communication. You don't have the bias of like, well, I see these people every day. They must know what I'm doing. They must have the latest and greatest. And so it's really forced us to prioritize sharing, prioritize communication, prioritize like setting expectations. And I think that we don't have when we're in a meeting, no one's in the room, quote unquote, and there's not as many like side conversations. It's not as hard to keep up with things as when some people were in the room and some people were like at home or in a co-working space. And I think that as a team, we have to set expectations about when we're available to like pair, when we're available to field questions, because you have to protect your focus time. And I think that it was still really a challenge in office to protect focus time, but it wasn't, it didn't seem as difficult because you weren't like you were just getting up and walking around and that doesn't seem like a switching gears quite so much as like suddenly having people around when you're like alone and then you suddenly have people around and so I think as a team we've done a really good job of setting those expectations of we for a lot of us the morning is when we want to focus and we want to heads down and we don't want immediately jump into meetings and then afternoons are when we want to pair and so just kind of setting that expectation as a team and like sharing about when we feel our most focused or when we feel our most sociable I think it's really nice insight to have about the folks you work with. And it doesn't mean that I can't ping somebody in the morning and be like, hey, I have a question. It just means I don't necessarily expect a response immediately. And I I feel like a a sort of a follow-on question just because my Mm -hmm. team is distributed on so many different time zones. Is your team mostly Eastern time? We are mostly Eastern time. Um, we have some, a few folks um, Pacific time, uh, I think a couple in mountain time. Uh, we're mostly in North America at least. And I know that even folks in Pacific time zones, like they tend to get up a little bit earlier. I don't know if that's like a personality trait that people on the West Coast just are like morning people, but it seems like a lot of folks I work with find it easier to start work a little bit earlier and end a little bit earlier. So I think as somebody who works on the East Coast in the U.S., it's pretty like everybody's working in a way that I find really helpful. Uh, So I can imagine for folks in other time zones, it might be hard, but something else that we've done is prioritize asynchronous communication. Though we could just have a meeting about stuff, it's better for long-term planning and long-term communication to maybe record a video when you have something you wanna share, or maybe use GitHub more liberally and have more things documented so that people can jump in uh, and use Slack for things that are ephemeral things that you don't either need immediate attention and you document elsewhere or things that you know can go away after a while or just like chatting and you mentioned switching teams i i'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about what you're doing now but maybe how you got here as far back in your career journey as you want to share Sure. I don't have an undergraduate degree in design, so I started my career doing front-end development, building really horrible WordPress websites for nonprofits, and I really liked the process of working with clients and figuring out what they needed out of a website. A lot of people, especially in nonprofits, are not always the, the most digitally savvy, especially like local nonprofits. And so I really like talking to them about what do people, what should people know, or what should people be able to do on your website. And so I thought that I really wanted to make physical things because I was like, I don't like never talking to people, not working with people. And I kind of thought that was a symptom of the industry and not necessarily just a symptom of where I was working at the time. Uh, So I went to grad school for industrial design and I really loved it, but it seemed like all of the things that I was really interested in were, had a digital component and it was like, okay, do I want to make smart 
devices or do I want to just go into UX uh, and product like digital product design? And I was lucky enough to have uh, a couple of professors who had a digital design studio and they were like, yeah, we need someone who can front end, <laughs> who can do front end and who can do UX. And you can learn a lot on the job that, you know, supplements grad school industrial design work. And then I kind of bounced around between in-house and agency after grad school. Uh, and eventually after my last agency job, I was like, I need somewhere that has a better work-life balance. And, and everybody at Shopify was like, hey, this is a pretty decent company for that. We do that thing pretty well. And that, that has been the case so far. So I've been at Shopify for about two and a half years and I've, it's really been nice. Oh, and I started, I guess I can talk about, yeah, I started at Shopify on a team that made internal tools. And so we made developer tooling for like people that worked at Shopify. And I was the only designer on that team. You know, there were maybe like 20 individual teams in that like larger organization and we were trying to like have one designer just be like just in time so they'd be like hey we have this thing we've already built it can you fix it for us and I'm like ah (laughs) but it was it was like a nice way to kind of get it pushed me out of my comfort zone which was really nice and the folks that I worked with were really uh, excited about UX even if we didn't have a lot of processes so it was really fun to work with back-end engineers and like full stack developers who were super excited about UX uh, and like interested in what design could do. And they knew that they weren't quite hitting the mark, but they, it was hard to close that gap. And then earlier this year with like new goal setting at work, they were like, hey, we need designers to move around in between teams to hit these goals this year. So I joined the inventory team, which is where I've been since then. And what's a, a day on the inventory team look like for a designer? Gosh, yeah, the cop-out is like, there's no typical day, but I, that's not necessarily true. So like I said, we we communicate a lot and that doesn't necessarily mean that we're like always on Slack chatting. It doesn't mean that we're always in video calls or something like that, but it does mean that in general, everybody knows what everybody else is doing. So I get up and come to work, uh, walk from the kitchen where I had my coffee into my office at the end of the house. My commute is really nice. Say hi to my coworkers, which is my dog and my cat. <laughs> and then you Usually I'll start the morning catching up on Slack if there's anything that changed uh, for people from other time zones, anything that I need to, you know, anything that I got feedback on like while I was away. I will usually jump into Figma and design some stuff or GitHub and try to group things and, and organize our, our product our project management a little bit and then in the afternoon is when we have like meetings feedback uh, is when we pair to jam on stuff together and then usually we try to wrap it all up at the end of the day and not necessarily finish something in one day but have a place that we're like okay here's where we are at the end of this day so we can pick it up or somebody else can pick it up tomorrow nice and w- when you talk about like somebody else picking it up tomorrow it sounds like there's maybe many people working on the same projects. What's your team look like? Yeah, so I work with a couple of other designers. We don't necessarily pass things back and forth that off that often, but just to kind of give everybody a sense of, okay, I'm working on this problem and I'm trying to solve it and here's where I've gotten at the end of the day and any feedback is super helpful and it's not a great way to frame feedback tell me whatever, but hopefully the goal is that people are caught up enough that they know, you know, within a project team they know what kind of feedback you're looking for at this point and then it's really helpful if you do need we have a staff designer that I work really closely with and so it's always and he's across a couple of teams so it's always nice when he can jump in 
uh, and jam on something and then we can give an update to folks at the end of the day just to be like here's where we are different people on the team have different context on inventory is such a complex system and there's a lot to know from like the perspective of a merchant and so people different people on different teams who have worked on different projects have different kind of perspectives. And so getting the team to write is a constant like task that we have to work on is like, okay, we can think about a problem this way, but maybe like our merchants are thinking about it this other way. And so we need to like reframe how we're solving this problem. I, yeah. I feel like I've started hearing the, the phrase staff designer a little bit more recently mm. for someone that doesn't know what that kind of role is. Could you describe it? Totally. So uh, a Shopify, and I think it's probably different. A lot of like leveling systems are different uh, in different companies. But at Shopify, after you hit senior designer, there's kind of two tracks you can take. One is a more managerial track. And so you're more of a coach. You're more like getting the team and the project and that kind of thing. You have direct reports. And so that's like lead. I don't know what all the titles are there. You'd be a lead at that level. And There's also an individual contributor or IC path, which is like staff, principal, that kind of thing. And there you might work across a couple of teams. You might work in a domain kind of area, like you might work across inventory, for instance. You're still doing a lot of mentorship. You're still doing a lot of like team growth, but you are less responsible for the careers of people and more responsible for the work and and setting a really high bar for quality and helping people get unstuck when they are stuck and that kind of thing. When I work with our staff designer, we just throw spaghetti at the wall sometimes (laughs) and see what sticks. Uh, And it's really fun to work with someone who has like a ton of skill and is able to kind of see possibilities in in the spaghetti so you know you try something and you're like it's bad i know it's bad but like there's something about it that i like and i can't really put my finger on it and a lot of times he can uh, and so that's really fun to to have somebody who sees the the possibilities with you i like that i'm gonna put on my resume that i can see through the spaghetti <laughs> yeah yeah it's definitely a skill so what about advice that you might have for someone that's just starting out in design i i think something that i did in a lot of Something that I see a lot of young designers do is they make design their whole deal. And it can be really, I think it's a way of fighting imposter syndrome to make your identity as a designer. And I think it's really difficult later in your career to decouple your sense of self from your job in a healthy way. If you have built your whole foundation of who you are as an adult on being a designer. And so I think people who might start their career a little bit later, maybe can avoid this a little bit more easily, especially for young people that are starting in design, have other things you're into (laughs) and like to have have friends that aren't designers and do stuff that's not work because it can really like, I think conventional wisdom for a long time has been like, don't turn your hobbies into side, into like jobs or don't like turn your hobbies into side hustles. But I think I want to take that a step further and be like, be something other than a designer in your personal life. Like it's cool to be a designer at work. Like being a designer is an awesome job and it is like a special way of seeing the world sometimes, but also everybody has that in a, in a sense and everybody has something that's special about the way they see the world. And so getting those other perspectives and getting that other experience will make you a better designer, but that's not, I don't think that's the goal. The goal is to make you like a more well-rounded person and like a happier person that like when you get feedback on your work, you're not like, oh, this is, means I'm a bad designer and therefore a bad person. <laughs> like, I, 
Like I don't have anything else to fall back on. I think that's something that I struggled with a lot in early in my career. Yeah, that's really fantastic advice because I definitely did the same thing too. And yeah. I, I think you're right about it, it be probably being around imposter syndrome and wanting to fit in the design totally. community. But yeah, if you think of what if your friends that are engineers only talked about engineering, you would run out of stuff to talk about with them. So yeah. they don't want that to happen from you either. Yeah, I think the loudest people in the design community are like the loudest people in any community. They just make that their whole deal because that's what people expect from them at this point. And no shade to them. They're finding things that work for them in their life. And they probably have things that aren't like design Twitter to talk about when they're hanging out with their friends. But I know a lot of designers that kind of only hang out with other designers and like hopefully talk about other things that are interesting, hopefully have other things in common. But yeah, I think it's really nice to get some perspective when I talk to friends that aren't designers and get a break from thinking about things in a design sense. What about more senior designers? What would you like the principal and staff designers and design managers to hear? I think senior designers can, and I'm including myself in this, can really work on how we give feedback. I think it's really tempting to do the kind of like negative solidarity thing of I got really crappy feedback in my early career so you should have to deal with like really harsh feedback or something like that and I don't think that actually helps anybody. I don't think it's productive to give feedback that's like oh this is bad and it's not helping you if you want to really be selfish about it like it's not helping you to give feedback that's that counterproductive. It's feedback is a practice that we all have to work on and it's a muscle that we all have to flex to to get stronger at it and so instead of saying oh I don't like this or this part is bad or this doesn't look right practicing on giving feedback that's like actionable and specific and not just like this doesn't gel like I get I don't know I've gotten so much bad feedback in my life from clients and, and like managers and like senior people in my career but any feedback that's like this is a little muddy or I heard somebody get feedback that was this is horsey <laughs> I don't know what that means and I don't know how to fix horsey. I understand like why people give feedback like that because some of it is really hard to quantify, but don't expect people to take action on feedback that's like that and, and don't expect them to walk away feeling good about it. I think feedback, if you're going to give feedback that's like, there's something about this that's confusing and I don't really, can't really put my finger on it. Like help them fix it and work with them to fix it, pair with them, like jam on something together. Don't just be like, it doesn't work. Okay, bye. <laughs> like, yeah. like, it's like, I don't know how to fix that. I probably know, like they probably know it doesn't work if you're giving them that feedback. And so I think, yeah, making it a priority for yourself and for the people you work with to give good feedback, I think is something because you do have as a senior designer you do have experience and you can see things that maybe more junior people can't see but trying to really be specific and ask questions like there might be a reason that it looks like that there might be a reason it's horsey I don't know and so instead of being like this is bad I don't like it it's more about being like hey what have you tried so far what have you tried that doesn't work you know can you tell me about the spacing here and like why you decided to like give this a ton of space and this less space that kind of thing I think being curious is something that pays off in the long run. I love that. I I feel like feedback is one of the things just like seeing through the spaghetti or interviewing <laughs> that is a skill to be learned. And totally. it's I don't think it's that easy for everybody. And I personally like feedback that just is like pointing me in a direction. 
of maybe mm-hmm. you could spend some more time on this or give it another tr- attempt because the designer that's closest to something is going to have the most knowledge and be able to mm-hmm. effectively solve problems because they have the most context. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I find that a lot of feedback, unfortunately, is like too prescriptive or I, horsey totally. is quite vague. Not helpful. Yeah. And I like what you said about being prescriptive. My lead once said like, when you start giving people direction rather than feedback, you're taking away their autonomy and you're making it so that they're the doer and not the designer. And I think about that a lot. And I think about asking questions, I think is a way to get people thinking about things that you might want them to think about without directing them to tighten up the spacing or fix the hierarchy or that kind of thing. You can be like, hey, tell me about what's the most important thing on this page. And then if they're like, oh, it's the smallest thing. And then you can be like, do you think that maybe people won't see that? You know, it's like, that's a much better way of going about it than make this bigger. (laughs) Like Then they're just the hands that are kind of doing what you've said and they're not gonna learn from that. Yeah, I really like what you said about doer versus designer. I yeah. used to run a team inside of an organization. We used to say, are we are we a service organization right now? Mm-hmm. And because we were just doing what people needed very prescriptively. And it work, It does work. Like, work gets made. But yeah. I, I think you lose all the benefits of having experienced designers. Totally. And I think sometimes you, like, because of time constraints or if someone is just not getting it, you have to lean on that direction a bit harder and be like hey what if we made this bigger or like you do it in figma and you show them and you're like what do you think about this and give them a chance to give feedback instead of the other way around and sometimes you have to kind of push people but i don't think that should be anyone's default so there are a lot of amazing people and lots of benefits of being parts of our creative communities but on the flip side of that i think there's a lot of problems especially mm-hmm. right now in our creative communities what are your tips for fighting and resisting the white supremacy the patriarchy the ableism and the bigotry transphobia and the racism that all exist within our creative communities yeah it's really similar to feedback in a way like the way that we give and receive feedback kind of has to change in in able to address or in order to address some of these things i think that if you see somebody doing something that's not good, that's not cool, saying something and, and you know, if you feel like it's it's possible to say something and on the flip side, if somebody calls you out for saying something that's not cool and, you know, using a term that's not great or, or like pushing someone, like there's a list of like white supremacy, what's it called? It's like signs or like symptoms of white supremacy in the workplace and it's like having arbitrary deadlines that enforce urgency like unnecessary urgency and like those kinds of things Uh, and i think those are all really interesting to read over and see which ones are like happening where you work and and what your team can do to address those things but just like when somebody gives you feedback on your work It's not a statement on you as a person. I think realizing that when you get feedback on something that you've said or something that you've included in a design, that's not great. It's not a statement on you as a person. It's like something that you've done or said or created and that can be fixed. I think that it's hard to hear that something you've done is racist or ableist or otherwise shitty, but it's a gift that somebody trusts you to take action on that. And I think on the flip side, when you give someone feedback that something they've done is not great, you're giving them a gift. And if they choose to not accept it, like that sucks. And it sucks to like think that someone will rise to that occasion and they don't. But yeah, I think that's my like feeling where I'm at right now. (laughs) Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, no, I love that. One, I I hadn't heard of the 
checklist of white supremacy symptoms in the workplace. So I'm definitely going to have to check that out. Yeah. But I also like your positioning of it's a gift when someone tells them that you like fucked up. Yeah. Uh, They trust you to fix it. And the delivery is is important too. Someone is just like, yo, you fucked up. Like, it's like, oh, it's kind of the horsey feedback. But if someone is like, hey, this is, you know, unless they're a friend, unless they have the kind of, you know, relationship with you just to be like, ooh, bad, bud. But yeah, if someone is like, hey, like, actually that word that you used is not great. I try to use this other word personally. If someone is taking the time to share that with you, that's a gift. That's trust. Yeah, and I really loved your um, analogy to feedback. You're creating an opportunity for someone to try again, (laughs) learn more. You're trusting them to get it right. Who is one person that the listeners should know about? So my friend Elizabeth Goodspeed uh, is a designer, uh, and she has a newsletter called Casual Archivist that I think is just fascinating. I don't know how... She does it. She, I think she teaches like courses on archivism. So uh, maybe that's something that I should take her up on. But she just pulls out like magazine covers. She has one on matchbooks. She has one on, I think, ham radio cards that used to be a thing. And she'll talk about the kind of medium that's collected here and the, the time and the artists and the, the kind of Uh, If it's like a physical thing, she'll talk about the production process a little bit. And it's really just fascinating to see either like the collected works of one artist or examples of a collection of a type of item just kind of gathered together and just a little snapshot in time, which I think is really fascinating. I'm so excited to check this out. (laughs) Yeah, it's really cool. What about books? What do you think uh, everyone should read? Yeah. So I have like, I I told you earlier, it's a little bit of an embarrassing book because it's very like self-helpy, but it's called Mindset. Uh, I think there's a subtitle that I don't remember, uh, but it's called Mindset and it's by a psychiatrist or psychologist uh, of some sort. And I'm full of information about this book, but I read it. uh, I read it and it really like changed the way I think about evaluating myself. uh, And it kind of made me realize how harsh I was and how like unfairly I judge myself and other people and it's kind of about you know if you have the mindset of um, it's, it's similar to like a learner's mindset or like a beginner's mindset but if you have the mindset of like everything can be either a success or a failure you're not evaluating you're not valuing the effort that you put in and so like the one of the examples is like if you teach a kid that getting A's is success then they won't want to take classes that are difficult because they might not get A's. Uh, And so they won't want to like study for a test or try really hard because that's not valued. The only value is an A. And I think that is a really easy mindset to get into in design as well. You can be like, this either solved the problem and people liked it, or this didn't solve the problem and people didn't like it, and that's bad. And uh, I think a lot about getting the team that I'm on to the right answer, even if I don't necessarily have the right answer. And I think that is what this book is about. And so it's all about how if you never try something, it's going to be really difficult for you to feel like you're ever growing and changing. One of the examples is playing the piano. I feel like I did a better job explaining this earlier. But (laughs) one of the examples is playing the piano. Like no one can just sit down and play the piano. But if you have the right mindset, then the practicing and the messing up can be really rewarding. And, you know, 
if you have the wrong mindset, then it's going to be really difficult to practice and not be good at it. And you won't really want to put in the effort to get better because if you're not valuing the effort, that feels like a failure already. I really needed to hear this specifically right now. I'm uh, (laughs) trying to learn a second language and it's definitely, you're right, it is a mindset of, hey, I just have to be bad at this for a while. Totally. And it's like really embarrassing. Like when I lived in Montreal, I was terrified to speak French to people because uh, like I learned very European French and Quebecois is totally different. And, you know, it's it, like they understand and, you know, you can speak to people, but I could sometimes not understand what people were saying and they couldn't understand what I was saying because I would just like mumble instead of actually trying to enunciate because I was worried I would be wrong. And it just made it so much worse for myself than if I had just like then the times that I did just try and people would either be like, it's fine, we can speak English or they would be like, oh, you're speaking French. That's great. So I think a speaking language is a really good example of when the effort is so important. And if you repeatedly, if you repeatedly put in the effort, you'll improve. Uh, but if you expect to be good from the like get go, you're going to be really disappointed and really frustrated. I love that it was a book recommendation with really solid advice with it already. So I'm excited yeah. to read this. It's really good. I, I got the recommendation from uh, my therapist. And then when I started at Shopify, it was actually part of our like book bar. So like a series of books that you could just like have and read like in the office or now I think it, you can just buy them and expense it. But yeah, it was like one of the things that made me really excited to work at Shopify. Like when I first started was them valuing this book and then reading it and being like, oh, wow, this is great. <laughs> like this is a totally different way of thinking about the effort that you put into something. And I think like running is a really good analogy for that. Like running is difficult. And a lot of people think that running just sucks, but running only sucks if you're doing it bad, (laughs) if you're doing it wrong. Like if you're making yourself miserable every time you run, that's like not the way to go about it. Like you should have easy runs and you should have, you know, fun runs. And and it's not, every run isn't going to be fun. Every run isn't going to be easy, but thinking about the effort that you put in is a better way of thinking about success than the pace or the distance or something like that. So it's changed the way I approach a lot of things in my life. I believe everyone should get paid for their time. So part of the show is we take the profits that we have from the show, selling swag, advertising, and share it with our guests. Are there other ways that the listeners can support you? Yeah, I feel like right now the way that you can support me is to donate to uh, like Afghani refugees, reconstruction and mutual aid in Louisiana and New York. There's a lot of stuff happening in the world and it would make me really happy if people heard this and tossed a few bucks to folks who are struggling at the moment. Amazing. I will put links in the show notes for people as well. Thank you. And where is the best place for people to find you? Uh, Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at K-R-Neely, N-E-E-L-Y. I don't actually talk about design a whole lot, but if you have questions uh, or you want to talk about design or running or dogs or gardening, if you want to see a picture of my dog, then that's the best place to do it. I find your Twitter to be extremely enjoyable, so I also (laughs) endorse that. Kate, this has been such a great conversation. I know this is an audio podcast, but I've been nodding along the whole time. And <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we wrap up? No, I think just it's a difficult time. Like this is, you know, September 2021, just to put a real hard date on it. And things in the U.S. are difficult and things elsewhere, I imagine, are also 
in varying degrees of difficult. Be nice to yourself. Do something nice for yourself today is my, my only little sign off. I can't think of a better way to end the show. <laughs> Thank you so much, Zach. This was so much fun. Bezier is a design interview podcast amplifying voices in our creative communities that don't already have large platforms and aren't working at big five tech companies. We focus on finding guests from all over the world and representative of as many of us as possible. If you have a great guest idea for Bezier, please email us at inquiry at zoct.studio. That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at Z-A-C-H-T dot studio.